Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. have a Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to Mark chapter 6? We could call it a Father's Day blessing. This kind of just landed where it did, but no, let's call it intentional. Today, uh, you get a double header, dads. Uh, We are going to be looking at two of the most famous miracles of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus feed the 5,000, and then we're going to see Jesus go wakeboarding without a boat. And if you're wondering, wait a second, how are those two things possibly connected? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Mark chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 30, and we'll see how these incredible miracles are actually connected. The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him what they had done and taught. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So um, if you weren't here with us last week, we saw Jesus send these 12 guys out on mission to join him in what he is doing in the world. And here in verse 30, we get the return. They they come back and they report to Jesus. Like, man, uh, the demons were submissive in your name. We saw people healed. We saw people believe and lives transformed. And Jesus' response to all of that is awesome. Now, let's go away to rest. Um, Some of you, you need to just underline this in your Bible because we live in a culture um, where being a workaholic is somewhat of a virtue, um, that rest is kind of for wimps. I mean, no one says it out loud, but this is the air that we breathe. But with Jesus, um, he values good work. He sends these guys out on mission, but there's something Jesus values more than doing good work, and that is getting away to be with God and having our soul to rest in him. Um, See, what we see throughout the Bible is that while um, God goes with you in your work, we saw that when we went through the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, We'll see this um, when we get into Genesis, Lord willing, in the fall, that you were really made to do good work, to partner with God with what he's done in this world. We even saw that last week. Um, The thing the Bible says is you were made for these things, but you weren't made for these things alone that primarily you are made for a relationship with God, and it's only out of an overflow of that relationship do you have anything to offer your work and to offer this world. And this is why Jesus has such an incredible rhythm in his ministry of he'll do good work, and then he'll pull away to get alone with God. And in fact, we saw it earlier in Mark. He typically begins his days getting alone to pray, to be with God, and out of that place of intimacy with the Father, then he goes into his day, then he does work. And and Jesus has this incredible rhythm of work and rest, or more accurately, rest and then work from that rest and then rest some more. And um, here what he does is he invites his disciples into that same rhythm, uh, into that same way of life that he invites you and me into as well. And um, that's Jesus' invitation, but his plans quickly get thwarted. We see this in verse 32. It says, And they were, went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many 
things. So uh, Jesus says, come away, rest for a while. He's drawing them into this rhythm of rest and work and be with God and um, join God in his work in the world. He invites them away to rest. But somebody, and Mark actually says many people see them getting into the boat, they recognize them, they say, hey, isn't that Jesus? And so they run ahead of them. I don't know if they're fast runners or what, but they run ahead. And by the time Jesus lands in what they thought was an isolated, kind of a a desolate place to draw away and be alone together, um, by the time they get there, there's this massive crowd there. Uh, this was not the plan. And, and I said this a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that amazes me about Jesus is his willingness to be interrupted. He doesn't say, sorry guys, I had a plan for a spiritual retreat. Got to go home now. Come back later. Maybe I'll uh, help you next time. Jesus, he plans to get on the way on this retreat with his disciples. The crowds see him. They run ahead. He gets off the boat and he interrupts his plans to minister to the crowd. And, and Mark tells us why. Mark says in verse 34 that he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, um, that is deeply biblical imagery. Um, the Bible all over, from cover to cover, will talk about humans is sheep, and really God is the good shepherd that we need. And um, I don't know if you grew up in church or if you've been around church any amount of time, but that can sound kind of cute to us, right? Like, we're sheep. Like, people count us before they go to bed. We're white, and it's snow, and pure, and beautiful. Uh, and, you know, people would uh, shave us uh, in order. I guess I'm going way too deep into this analogy. Um, But the idea of sheep sounds cute, but if you lived in the first century world, you wouldn't think sheep are cute. Let me read this to you from um, Philip Keller, who was a shepherd in the Middle East for decades. This is what he says about sheep. If left to themselves, sheep will follow the same trails until they become ruts, graze the same hills until they turn to desert wastes, pollute their own ground until it is corrupt with disease and parasites, Many of the world's finest sheep ranges have been ruined beyond repair by overgrazing, poor management, and indifferent or ignorant sheep owners. No other class of livestock require more careful handling and more detailed direction than do sheep. Sounds like us. According to the Bible, that's you and that's me. And if some of you are like, hey, I think you're pushing the analogy too far, um, what I would say is go ahead and check the scriptures this week. You'll see in Isaiah chapter 53 that the prophet says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone after our own way. This is the consistent testimony of the Bible, that you and I are sheep and it ain't a compliment. It's speaking to our need. It's, it's, and I should say this, it's not dogging on your intelligence. Some of you are very, very intelligent people. This isn't saying that you're dumb. What it's saying is that you and I were made by God to need his leadership. That we're not created as little gods, we're created as, de- as dependent beings who are depend on God to lead us into life and into flourishing. And, and see, if you live for any amount of time, you know this is true. Um, you know that we are... Um, Like, let me ask you this. Have you ever had an idea that seemed good to you in the moment and then you got it and it was disastrous? 
Mm-hmm. We've got one honest person in here. Awesome. Uh, yeah, like we are all prone to desiring things that if we would get them would lead to our destruction. And this is why the scriptures say we are like sheep. We are dependent. We need the good leadership of a good shepherd to actually find life. And um, what we see here, uh, this should encourage you. Maybe this should free you up to be honest is that God doesn't look at our neediness. He doesn't look at us kind of wandering the same path and um, really drinking our own feces. He doesn't look at that and say, well, good job, dummies. What we see here in Jesus is that he sees our neediness and it fires up his compassion. That he sees this crowd as sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. They um, maybe don't know what they're doing. And it fires up his compassion. He doesn't move away from needy people. He doesn't say, why don't you clean yourself up and then you can come to me. Jesus sees their neediness, and it fires up his compassion. Mark says he has compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. That that's the very reason that it is our need that fires up the heart of God to come after you and to me and to serve and to lead and to guide us into life. And um, if you could believe that in your bones, like it's one thing to say, yes, I intellectually, I believe that God sees our neediness and moves towards us. If you could believe that in your bones, um, I believe that would absolutely change your life. Because then when you sin, when you mess up, when you do something that reveals that you are needy, you wouldn't run from him. You'd run toward him knowing that my sin, my neediness, it's not making him angry at me. It's firing up his compassion to come and to heal me. And that's what we see in Jesus here. That that he's not out there with a lightning bolt ready to crack this crowd for being needy. He sees their neediness and it fires up his compassion to move towards them and to teach them and to lead them into life. And um, it must have been a long sermon. I promise you today's will be shorter, but it must have been a long sermon because Mark says Jesus is preaching and then the crowds get hungry. And, and that's what we read in verse 35. This is where it gets really interesting. This is where it maybe gets to the part that you know. Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, meaning we're in the middle of nowhere. And the hour is now late, meaning all the local diners have just closed. Verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Get them into the big city that's got the 24-hour diner because otherwise these people are going to starve to death. Verse 37, but he, that's Jesus, answered them, you give them something to eat. I love that response. Every time I read this story, I'm like, Jesus, it's... It's like he's trying to get them to remember what just happened last week. That he sent them away without bread, without provisions for the way, and God provided in an opportunity that seemed impossible. And so here they go, they say, "Um, Jesus, it's impossible to feed all these people. You have to send them away. And Jesus is like, you give them something to eat. Like, don't you remember what you were just telling me about in verse 30? He's trying to teach them. He's um, trying to lead them into a greater dependence upon God. Remember what happens when you live on my resources and not on your resources alone. Um, But apparently this is a lesson that the disciples are still learning. And I will say this to you every week in this series. That should encourage you and I as we're still learning lessons in our own walk with God. Amen? That these disciples look at their response here. 
Uh, we're in verse 37. He said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Um, this is where if I'm Jesus, I might be like, I don't know, maybe you should do what you did when I sent you out without bread and somehow saw God provide. Maybe you should do that. But Jesus sees their neediness. He's compassionate. He's nicer than me. This is why he's Jesus and we worship him. And I, I'm just up here to tell you about him this morning. Verse 38, he says to them, how many loaves do you have? He doesn't critique them. He doesn't call them out. He says, go and see. And, and when they found out, they said, hey, we, we have five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, I'm not super great at math. I'm not super great at food prep. But I know that five loaves and two fish has no business feeding 5,000 men. Um, Matthew, in his gospel, he'll tell us that there were actually women and children there as well. And so most commentators will um, kind of make their best estimate to this crowd size. It's somewhere between ten to 15,000 people. So Jesus just fed a stadium full of people with a little boy's lunch. Um, this little boy comes forward. We see in the other gospels, he's got um, five loaves and two fish that mama packed him for the day. And Jesus says, you know what, that's enough. I'm going to turn this into a feast for a stadium. And, and I don't know about you, I have so many questions. I'm like, how did Jesus do it? Did he um, divide it up into little pieces and then, pa, it all multiplied? Or did he just kind of draw from one basket and then it just kept going? Um, I don't know how Jesus did it. Mark's not interested in telling us how Jesus tell it, did it. Mark is interested in telling us that Jesus did it. That Jesus stepped into a space the disciples said that's impossible there's no way to feed all of these people this is a stadium full of people you've got a little boy's lunch how can this possibly happen and Jesus says that's no problem for me and he feeds a stadium full of people with a little boy's lunch see Mark doesn't He's not interested in telling us how so much as he wants us to know that Jesus did it. He wants us to see that Jesus is not only a compassionate shepherd, a compassionate leader, but that he is also the kind of shepherd who is able to provide for his people. He is able um, to come through for his people even when, or maybe you could say especially when it seems impossible. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd, and he is also the kind of shepherd who can provide for his people's needs. And um, this, this idea, it's, it's not a new idea. If you're familiar with your Bible, this story is dripping with echoes from the Old Testament. Um, in the second book of the Bible, there's this story where God's people are delivered from slavery in Egypt. And as they come out of Egypt in the Exodus, they're wandering through the wilderness, and they get hungry. And they say, hey, we didn't have time to pack any bread before we left Egypt. We didn't have any food on us. And they begin to grumble because they get hangry. 
And what God does is he provides for them miraculously that manna, this bread, just shows up on the ground in the morning in a way that would seem impossible. And maybe that's what Jesus did, that he just brought manna back. That's what I like to think, is that Jesus is bringing back manna. Just the Bible's one big story. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I don't know, a little speculation. Maybe he just brought the manna back. I don't know. But this story is certainly echoing where Jesus provided manna in the day, and then he provided a meat in the evening, every day for 40 years for the people in the desert. And, and frankly, I'd rather be an Old Testament saint in this regard. I think I'd take meat over fish. But the point is the same, that Jesus is providing meat and bread. He's providing, to me, a balanced diet. Some of you would say, where's the vegetables? I'm just trying to be biblical, okay? You can eat your vegetables. Jesus provides for them holistically in a way that God has been doing, catch us, from the very beginning for his people. And I have to believe that when Mark is writing this, he's thinking back to that going like, hey, you remember how God did that in the cloud, in the wilderness? Well, now the God in the cloud is there in the person of Jesus Christ. And here he is doing the same. See, what we see in the scriptures, um, you see this over and over in the Old Testament, is that God can do this because he's the creator. Page one of our Bible, he created everything from nothing. This is not hard for him to do. This would be hard for you and me. It would frankly be impossible, just like the disciples said. But for Jesus to create and bring fish and loaves out of nothing. I don't know how he did it. All I know is according to the Bible, it's not difficult for God. The same God that spoke fish out of existence in the first place is now speaking those fish into his hand to feed this crowd. And I think it's so easy to look at this story and go, yeah, God provides. Jesus is awesome. But let me ask you, how does that relate to your life? Where, where do you need to believe that God provides like this? Because I don't know what it is, but this is such a familiar story that we, we can tell it. I don't know if they're giving goldfish in Sunday school today. I, I hope they are. I'll, I'll find out later. But this is a great week for goldfish to go, look how God provides and wants you to have a great meal. But then somehow it's like we believe that I don't know, at some point God's arm got short and he wasn't able to provide and we live our lives. Like, do we live our lives in this glad awareness that he can provide out of nothing for me? Or how often do you live your life like I do and just wonder, like, is he going to come through for me? Is he going to come through here? Do I need to do this myself? I don't know, Lord. This feels impossible. See, I think it's so easy to say, I believe God spoke the world into existence. I think it's another thing to say, I believe God can come through in this conversation I'm about to have. I believe God can come through in my finances. I believe that God can provide. And I'm not saying be foolish, go blow all your money and see if God comes through for you. The Proverbs will warn you against that. I'm saying that if we are following Jesus and pressing in to know him as Lord, I think we should expect that he will provide for us. And it might look different than you expect. Maybe the people there were like, oh, I don't really like fish. But Jesus provides for his people. See, while the disciples are thinking in terms of what they can provide and they can do in their own resources, saying, shall we take 200 denarii, which is almost like their annual salary, and feed all these people? Jesus is thinking in terms of the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying from the very beginning, my kingdom is a place where I bring abundance out of nothing. This is not difficult for me. It wasn't back in the Exodus. It's not when he fed the 5,000 and it's not difficult for him today either. Jesus is a good shepherd who provides for his people. 
And it's not some meager provision. Uh, Look at verse 42. It says that they all ate and were satisfied. See, have you ever eaten a meal and thought, okay, that met my nutritional needs, but I'm not, I'm not too happy after that meal? Anyone been there? Like, when I got into my late 20s, I learned not every meal can be a fun meal. And I learned that there could be meals that can nourish you, but you're not super satisfied at the end. Anyone with me? That's not what Jesus gives them here. He not only nourishes them and provides for their needs, but it says that they all ate and were satisfied. That it was the kind of meal that wasn't a meager provision. It wasn't just like, oh, I got to get through this. There was something wonderful about it. And there's even 12 baskets left over at the end. It's abundant. It's satisfying. And I think what Mark's showing us here is that when when Jesus' kingdom breaks into this world, it's not only what you need, it's what you want. When Jesus' kingdom breaks into this world, it not only heals everything, it satisfies everything. And again, this is not a new idea. The story is dripping with echoes of the Old Testament. Um, It's dripping with not only the Exodus story, but there's a, a poem really at the center of the Old Testament that many of you might know that this story is absolutely echoing, even down to the language. Let me, um, let me share the poem with you, see if it sounds familiar. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Well, well why? That's Psalm 23, 1. Why don't you want? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. Um, quick Bible quiz for you. Where is this crowd sitting right now? Anyone shout it out. Green pastures, verse 39. Did you think that was a random detail? I was like, why is there green pastures? Looked at Psalm 23, word for word. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. It's like Jesus shows up. He's not just a good shepherd. He's the good shepherd that God's people have known for centuries who shows up and he makes his people lie down on green pastures. Anyone think this is a little on the nose for Jesus to be like, Look who I am. Look what I'm doing for you. Sit down on the green pastures. Psalm 23 goes on. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. See, one of the great lies that I think Satan tells is that God might be what you need to not go to hell someday, but it certainly won't be fun to follow God. And so you do your own thing and then try to maybe pray the prayer before you die and get the best of both worlds. And what the scriptures say is that's absolute nonsense. That what the scriptures say is if you really want to be satisfied, if you really want to have freedom and fullness of life, don't follow whatever desires you have. That'll lead you down a pat, down a rut, that you end up drinking your own feces and ruining the sheep shepherd field. What the scriptures will say is if you really want to have freedom and fullness of life, come to him because he will lead you into satisfying your deepest desires. He will take your weary soul that is angsty about the relationships, that is angsty about the state of the world, that is angsty about that thing you read on your phone on the way in this morning. He will take your weary soul and satisfy you. Catch this. Not just someday when you die. Right now. With Jesus, the life he came to bring, it begins now. And it goes on with more and more intensity into eternity. And, and I say that because I know from experience, I've sat there, I've, I've heard the sermon that God is good, and I've sat there going, yeah, that, that, maybe, maybe I'll get serious about that someday, but I think I know what's really going to make me happy right now. 
And some of you, you are chasing satisfaction in a thousand places. You come to church out of a sense of duty or obligation because, okay, um, I don't want him to light me up. I don't want to go to the bad place when I die. I want to go to the good place, so I'll show up. I'll do this religious thing, but Monday's mine, and definitely Friday night is mine. And what Mark is showing us by noting that these people were satisfied, by echoing Psalm 23, is that is not the path to life. If you really want to live, come to the good shepherd who will lead you into the fullness of satisfying your desires even now. And yeah, satisfying your desires might look different than you think. You might have things that you think will lead you into life, that Jesus is going to say, if you go down that path, you're going to fall off a cliff. I'm going to lead you this way. And that might not feel very fun in the moment, but that is Jesus because he loves you and he created you and knows everything about you, leading you into a fullness of life. See, the people, they ate and they were satisfied. And the question I have for you is, are you? you come here this morning satisfied with the goodness of Jesus or do you come in here with all these longings that are unmet and if you're in here with the unmet longings the invitation of this text is to come to the good shepherd he will satisfy your deepest longings in a way that only the God who created you and saved you and has loved you from before eternity began could ever do but Mark's not done verse 45 So they ate, and they were satisfied, and and now here we get our second great miracle, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So just in case any of you um, have attention to detail and you're like, didn't you say earlier that Jesus has a rhythm of rest and work? But then he shows up and he looks like a workaholic to me. He puts the rest off to address the crowd. Did anybody think this? I'm just curious if any of you think like me. Okay. Um, What Mark tells us is, yeah, he, he put the crowd first. He tended to the needs of the crowd, but then he really did get away to pray. And so in verse 46, he leaves the disciples and he goes up on the mountain to be alone with the Father. Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. So Jesus is on the mountain praying, being with the the Father, enjoying the love that the Trinity has always shared from before time began. The disciples, he sends them out in the boat to the other side to get ready for what's coming next. And they're out there on the sea. He's alone on the land in verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus sees you. I don't know if you know that. He's out there on the land. He's praying. He's being present with the Father. And and at the same time, he can see the disciples struggling on the sea. The disciples, they're in a bad way, we're going to find out. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, which if you're reading the ESV like me, you'll get a footnote at the bottom that says about 3 to 6 a.m. So at about the time they shouldn't be rowing anymore, they should be resting. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Oh, okay. Uh, but then he, they saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, 
it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Um, What a day these guys are having, right? Like they come back triumphant from their mission with Jesus. They come back like, I don't know if you've ever been to like a a summer camp or a missions trip. You come back with like that, they call it a mountaintop high, spiritual high. Um, They come back just so encouraged in the Lord to tell them what they've done. They're going to get away on a spiritual retreat with Jesus. Like that's pretty cool, right? They get there and there's this needy crowd there. And so Jesus spends the day ministering to the crowd. They miss out maybe on the spiritual retreat they thought they were going to get. And then Jesus sends them away and says, go to the other side. I've got some plans for you. And they get into the boat. And what happens when they get out in the sea? But another storm. Like another one. If you were here with us a couple weeks ago, they were just in like hurricane force winds on the sea. These are professional fishermen. I don't know what these guys are doing wrong, but they keep getting stuck in it. Um, Some commentators will actually suggest that there's a spiritual component that Satan's trying to wipe out Jesus and his apostles on the sea because there's all these demonic attacks going on around it. I don't know why. Again, Mark isn't interested in telling us why this keeps happening. But can you just sympathize with these guys that they're having quite a day? That they're out there on the sea. A storm begins raging again. And rather than trust the Lord of the storms... They freak out and they try to row through it. They try to make headway painfully. They're working and they're trying to get out of it rather than trusting Jesus that they learned two chapters ago can command the wind and the waves. They look to their own resources, the same thing they were doing on the land with the fish and the loaves, and they are trying to live into their own resources to free themselves from the issues that they've fallen into. And here's the connection between these miracles. Just as Jesus saw the neediness of the crowd and it fired up his compassion and made him move toward them, so now Jesus is going to go near to his doubting, faithless, freaking out disciples because his compassion is fired up when he sees their need too. And so maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you hear Jesus have compassion on the crowd and you're like, surely he's compassionate on people that are new to church or don't know better, but I've been walking with him too long to keep struggling. And if that's what you feel, well then watch how Jesus now moves towards the disciples and their neediness. Should they have known better? Yes. But they forget to trust Jesus. They doubt They freak out and Jesus moves toward them. Mark says he... um, he doesn't have a boat, by the way, so, uh, which would be a problem for you and me. But Jesus, we saw a couple chapters ago, created the wind and the waves. They bow at his command. And so, I don't know, Jesus said, like, give me a wake. Okay. And he goes out there. And they bow at his command. And so, there he is. And Mark says that he intended to pass them by. Now, I don't know what you envision. If he's, like, downshifting and getting in the left lane and trying to beat him to the other side of the shore so he could get there and be like, come on, guys, don't you remember Mark chapter 4? I am the Lord of the storms. Why didn't you trust me? But that's not what Jesus is doing here because I think I've said it 16,000 times so far. Um, These stories are dripping with echoes of the Old Testament. Um, They really, I mean, Mark will do this in places, but he ratchets it up with these two stories. And um, this language of pass by would have been unmistakable to his original audience. 
pass by, um, let me say it this way, that is Old Testament language for God drawing near to struggling saints to reveal his glory. If you've got notes, I've got a couple of references in there where you can um, go look that up this week. I think it'll really encourage your faith to see it wasn't just the disciples. But let me just tell you about a couple of them. Um, There's this guy named Moses, uh, and God says, I'm going to deliver my people from Egypt. And Moses is like, I don't know how you're going to do that. You know, Egypt, they're really super mighty, and um, it's kind of a whole thing. God delivers them, and he brings them out. And then Moses is like, but they complain a lot. God's people, we haven't changed too much since then. Um, I don't know how we're going to get to the promised land. And so what God does is he says, okay, you stand in the cleft of the rock there, and I'm going to pass by you, and I'm going to show you my glory. And that moment where God reveals his glory to this struggling saint, Moses, who isn't sure he can keep going, that moment when God passes him by and shows him his glory, it changes that man's life, and he comes out literally glowing and leads the people of God on in toward the promised land. It changes Moses' life, and Moses isn't the only one. If you keep going through the Old Testament, um, there's this prophet Elijah who has a great showdown um, with all these priests to demon gods that were sacrificing people. It was insane, and he stands up, and he's like, no, the God of the Bible, he's for life. He's not for death. He's good. He's not evil, and God delivers in a powerful way. And then Um, A political leader gets angry at him. Again, things haven't changed too terribly much. And he gets depressed. He goes, oh my goodness, how can I continue on if the people in leadership don't favor me? And what God says is, do not fear if they don't favor you. I'm with you. And so what he does is Elijah is there. And God, this is the language of the Old Testament, passes him by reveals his glory in such a way that that saint could get up and keep going. This is a consistent pattern in the Bible that when God's people struggle, he doesn't look at them and go, well, that's a shame. I thought you had so much potential. Let me move on and see if someone else has some potential. He draws near, it fires up his compassion, and one of the ways God acts in his compassion is he passes people by to reveal his glory in such a way that would minister to doubting hearts and bring them back to a place of faith and flourishing and freedom. And and that's what Mark has got to be mentioning when he said Jesus intended to pass them by. He he comes out on the water, walking on the water. Quick quiz, who can walk on the water but God alone? Job will say this in one of his songs, like God alone can tread on the waves because he made the waves. So Jesus comes to them in all of his glory, revealing that he is the Lord of the storms once again. He comes cruising on the waves. He's passing them by. It's meant for them to go, oh yeah, he's the Lord of the storms. We can trust him. This is so good. Is that the effect it has? No. Jesus means to pass them by. They see him in his glory. And it says they thought he was a ghost. And they freaked out. And they scream, and they're like, we're really going to die. There's a storm. There's ghosts everywhere. Are we in the bad place already? I don't understand what is happening. And and the reason I point that out is I think sometimes we can look at a miracle like this and say, well, if I could see Jesus walk on water, then I'd believe. Right? You ever thought that? Like, if I could just see the things that the people of old saw, if I could just see bread appear on ground in the morning, surely I'd trust God to provide for my daily bread, right? 
But if you read the pages of the scripture, what you see is that's absolutely not true. That the people of Israel, they literally had food provided for them every morning miraculously by the Lord. And they doubted in the same way that you and I doubt. On a day in and a day out basis. These disciples had Jesus wakeboard out to them without a boat. And they didn't just go, oh, he's the Lord. I can trust him. I don't need to freak out. No, they freaked out even more. They thought he was a ghost. And so Jesus again interrupts his plans to pass by them in his glory. And he gets in the boat and he's like, guys, do not fear. It's me. It's me. And what's so interesting about this whole thing is that... um, Matthew, in his gospel, when he tells this story, um, he notes that there's more to the story. Uh, You can read about it this week. Matthew chapter 14, you'll you'll see that um, when Jesus is wakeboarding by them and he says, hey guys, don't worry, it's me, don't fear, and then they scream. What Matthew adds is, but then Peter was like, Lord, if that's really you, would you call me out to you? Would you, if you're really the Lord of the storms, you can make even a guy like me float on these waves. And so Jesus is like, sure, Peter, come on out. And again, I would encourage you, read the story, Matthew 14. I don't want to give spoilers. Basically, he has some mixed results. The point is this. Mark's gospel is based on Peter's eyewitness testimony. If I'm Peter and I'm telling this story, I'm dang sure getting that part in there. Like, yeah, we freaked out. We thought he was a ghost, but I floated for like a second I was the only one, like the the other 11, they stayed back in the boat. Judas, God knows what he was doing. But I was out there for a second. But Peter, as he retells this story to Mark, and the Holy Spirit inspires him to write it down for us. What Peter is left reflecting on is not how for like two seconds I floated. What Peter remembers is where verse 52 ends. That we did not understand about the loaves. We didn't get it yet. Our hearts were hardened. I might have had this like joyful moment where I kind of stepped out in faith, but then I saw the wind and the waves and I started sinking. Peter remembers this event with the words, our hearts were hardened at that point. I didn't get it yet, but here's what he remembers. Jesus came after me anyway. Jesus doesn't come after the people who are religiously crushing it, who did good on their quiet times this week and have a perfect work-rest balance. Jesus comes after his saints who are struggling and doubting because that is the kind of shepherd he is. And in the ultimate, I, I guess I would just say this, that, Jesus, if you want to see Jesus in all of his glory, because that's really what this section about passing them by is all about, then when we're freaking out, we need to see the glory of Jesus in a way that uh, trumps the wind and the waves. We need to see the glory of Jesus in a way that outshines the storms and the chaos of life. We, like Moses, need to have his glory shine upon us so we can get back out with fresh faith and power to say, I know whom I've believed in. If you want to see Jesus in all of his glory, you cannot miss the reason that he walked on the waves. You cannot miss it. Jesus walks on the waves because his disciples forgot to trust him. 
He walks out. He intends to pass them by to reveal his glory, to meet their needs. And when they didn't even understand that, Jesus' response is not, okay, I'm going to start over. His response is to get into the boat and to tend to his fearful, wounded disciples. And, and this idea of forgetting to trust Jesus, it was not only the disciples' problem. This is all of our problem. Um, that, uh, the problem of all of humanity is that we have tried to be our own shepherds. That instead of looking to God to lead us and to guide us into life, we tend to look to our own resources and what we think will guide us into life. And that's true of Christian and non-Christian. If you're not a Christian and you've never trusted God to be your shepherd, today I would encourage you to be the day he is a shepherd that can lead and guide you in a way you can never guide yourself. But I've got to say this to those of us that do believe. In a functional day-in and day-out way, we can say, Jesus, I believe you are Lord, and with our actions we can say, but I'm my own shepherd. I believe you're my Savior, but I'll be my own shepherd, Jesus. And we have all done this. I think that we all struggle with this just like the disciples. And what, if you want to see Jesus in his glory, you've got to recognize he pursues his disciples anyway. He moves toward them in their doubt. And just like he moves towards them, he moves toward you and me and brings you here today to hear about his grace and his mercy and his love, not just 2,000 years ago and providing for them, but in the ultimate action of providing for his people. Jesus will go to the cross and on the cross, the way he says it in John 10.10 is, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. That on the cross, he goes to battle with our greatest needs. He um, takes on the wrath of God for our sin. He fights Satan and death itself and conquers it on the cross. And by laying down his life, he gives life to all of his sheep evermore. And this is the shepherd that we need. He's the only shepherd who can give us what we truly need. He can give us salvation from um, Satan, sin, and death. And he can satisfy us for our deepest longings and our deepest needs. Jesus is the only shepherd that can do that. And so the question we should be asking this morning is what do we do with all of this? Like, is your pastor, I don't want you to leave here and have your hearts be hardened because you don't understand and you don't respond to the word. I think Peter says this because after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when they get it and the Holy Spirit is poured out, He's like, I don't want people to be struggling. I don't want people to doubt. I want people to see Jesus in all of his glory. And if we're to see him in his glory, what do we do this morning? And that's where Mark ends this whole thing. Listen to verse 53. He says, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to where they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and catch this. And as many as touched him were made well. This is the third summary of healings that Mark gives us. And rather than seeing it as mere transition to what's coming next week, I think we should be seeing this as commentary on what just happened. Because the response of those, the response of the Gennesarets is contrasted with that of the disciples. Jesus shows up on the shore 
And rather than forgetting to trust him and not recognizing him and thinking he's a ghost, the Gennesarets immediately recognize him. They see him for who he is. And so what they do is they run to him instead of trying to fix their problems on their own. And what it says is as many as run to him are made well. It's the same word in the original language that will later be translated, are saved. It's this holistic term that he can heal their person and that he can save their soul. And I think the reason that Mark concludes with all of this is he wants to ask, are you going to respond like the disciples in this moment here to forget Jesus, to not recognize Jesus, to walk away and say, I'm not sure about Jesus, or you can respond like the Gennesarets in faith that says, I see who you are. I see your love in the cross and empty tomb. And though my life might be chaotic and I have some serious questions for you, I know that you are the good shepherd who laid your life down for me. And so I'm going to come to you today and ask that you would provide for me. That's where Mark leaves us. And so that's the question for us this morning. You know, it's... um. I'll say this, it's Father's Day, and I've I've been thinking about it. I know some of you are going to hear this sermon, you're going to hear about the leadership of Jesus, and you're going to be like, man, I'm not compassionate enough, I'm not gracious enough, I don't draw near enough, I'm not present enough, and you're going to try to row your way out of this. And I want to plead with you this morning, you cannot be the dad that you want to be until you know the love of the Good Shepherd. Because it's only when his love and leadership and grace for you is flowing into your life and loving you and transforming you that it can flow through your life. And, and others of you, maybe Father's Day is a really hard day and, um, and this is when you need to draw near to God. And instead of trying to row your way out of it, try to deny that you have emotional father wounds, it's to draw near to God and say, God, where the ideal is lacking, would you be present for me? I need you to provide for me. I can't row my way out of this one. And for others of you, maybe it has nothing to do with Father's Day. The thing is, we are all sheep who need the leadership of a good shepherd who will lay his life down for us to lead us into true life. And the question is, will you recognize Jesus as such this morning and come to him to be healed, to be made well? Because that is what Jesus has come to do for us. And that's the question Mark leaves us with. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would um, move among us, that you would make that truth real to us, that you would do something that my words cannot, and that is open the eyes of hearts um, to see you more clearly, to, uh, to believe, not just intellectually, but from the bottom of our hearts, he can do it. He's the one I need. I pray that you would open the eyes of each person in this room, myself included, to see you in your glory this morning in a way that would um, cause us to run to you like the Gennesarets. We want to be free in you. We want to know more of your love and your grace. And so I ask that as we come to the table right now and consider what you've done for us, that you would do something, um, that you would draw near to us and meet us in this space in a way that we might walk out of here with more life than we came. So help us in this moment. In your beautiful name I ask. Amen.